the Forward Together podcast from Hollywood Trust with Paul Gosling and Jared Dean. Hello and welcome to episode 15 of the Forward Together podcast. I'm Jared Dean and with me today is Paul Gosling. Paul, how's the form? Hi, Gerard. Fine as usual. Good stuff. So this podcast is a community relations focused um, discussion on a range of issues, including increasing the civic voice and creating a shared and integrated society, dealing with the past and the constitutional question. And we're having these conversations with people from wider civil society and with politicians as well. And this episode, Paul, you met with Maureen Hetherington, a friend of ours from The Junction. Absolutely, based within the Hollywood Trust. Yeah, exactly. Um, so Maureen talks about a whole range of issues, but she starts by talking about social media and I suppose the, the negative and positives that can play. That's right. Uh, she's very clear that you know we need to think clearly about how we uh, engage younger population um, a younger population that's very um, engaged with social media, which has both negative and positive impacts on their mental health and attitudes. Yeah. Okay. And, and Maureen also talked about um, when we're looking for solutions, we need both a top-down and a bottom-up approach. And at the moment, we seem only to have a bottom-up because the politicians, but there's Muslim. Well, yeah, and I, and I think maybe more in saying more than that, which is, yeah, firstly, we don't have the top down because we don't have the leaders in place. We don't have a mm-hmm. structural government within Northern Ireland, but also the bottom up isn't strong enough. Yeah. So, you know, in the absence of top down, we should have bottom up. But because we don't have the civic structures in place in which civic society has that voice, yeah. we're also missing the, the, the bottom up element of leadership as well. Right. Maureen also mentions integrated education um, as a solution to building a more integrated society. Yeah, I mean, I had assumed at the outset that when we asked these uh, asked these interviewees about these conversations about how do we have a shared and integrated society, that everyone would be saying, well, integrated education is the solution. And in fact, it's not come up anywhere near the extent to which I had assumed it would do. But Maureen is very clear that, yes, Integrated education is part of what we need to do to have an integrated society. But also she goes on uh, to deal with the issues about why the the, the proposals on shared housing aren't going that well and saying that we need uh, community planning. Mm. In that to enable you know societies to move more closely together, which in a sense is itself an idea which isn't that far away from citizens' assemblies. You know the concept of community planning, engage your population in terms of thinking about how you're going to create uh, a structure of society and a structure of housing estates, for example, that reflect the needs of people and help them uh, live together and work together. Yeah, and and that might go somewhere to address something that Maureen also touches on, which is the contradiction between. Um, people saying that they want a more integrated society, but the majority of people here don't actually want change when it comes to it. That's right, absolutely. And and one of the other things that she is saying is, and this is a theme that we have heard a lot in these interviews, is the is the fact that we've got these intergenerational attitudes, but you know, being passed down through the generations. And uh, Maureen feels very strongly that parents have a responsibility to um, encourage their offspring to, to think in a more open-minded way and to not simply absorb the attitudes, the biases, the prejudices that uh, have been there in previous generations. Okay, well, let's hear from Maureen now. 
Okay, uh, now our next interviewee is Maureen Hetherington at um, the, the Junction. Maureen, thank you very much indeed for, for doing this. Uh, we'll head straight into this. Um, how, in your view, do we strengthen civil society in ways that enable us to make progress? Um, it surprises me to realise when I work out in the community how many people are so uh, disconnected almost from reality um, because of the introduction of social media and apps and different ways of communicating both young people and adults. For me, they're overwhelmed by the amount of stuff that's put in to their brains and to society, what they read, how they see it, how they interpret it. So it surprises me at that disconnect between reality uh, and what's in their mind, their self-image. And I think that it has been very damaging, particularly for young people who have an expectation of life and what life should be for them uh, and disappointment whenever it doesn't come up to reality, doesn't come up to the fantasy world that they create through the social media. And I was reading there recently just how badly it can affect where young people are even saying themselves that they're on their apps or their Facebook or their Twitter for far too long. Um, so how do we make progress? How do we look at civil society? Um, and how do we strengthen them? I think that there has to be policy. There, have to, there has to be ways in which we can actually mitigate um, the, the use of all the social, social media and get people back into conversations with each other. And it's about quality time. And I don't think that that's something that's impossible to achieve. I think that the way that we do things, uh, lecturing and talking at people and being quite you know negative all the time, I think that we have to make everything very attractive for people to re-engage. Uh, and that depends on how we do that, how we engage, um, what is it that people are interested in, and it has to be based on self-interests. So what's in their interests? You know, better health, well-being, uh, particularly around mental health. So I think that to make civil society move forward, to progress, we have to um, encourage them to look at a different way of being with communicating with each other. Uh, the negativity around the news and what we hear gets us overwhelmed every single day and I think that there has to be a balance brought there about how much you can take in uh, and because it does become overwhelming. So again, it's about parents looking at young people and trying to encourage different ways of being with each other uh, opening up different ways of communicating and then engaging with people at what their self-interests are. Uh, and ultimately, I think that whenever you try to encourage people to think of the greater, the common good, you can get you know a change in attitude and mindsets that, that um, they need. Uh, and you know people are like sheep, they follow on, uh, and it's a way of actually re-engaging with them in a different way that values them. Surprising how many people have absolutely no self-worth, the people that we work at the grassroots. Um, they don't feel that they've got anything to say or that it's worth saying. And even, uh, it interests me a great deal when we're talking to people who are working in the field, again, their, their own worth, self-value is very low, um, their self-esteem is low. And you wonder what's happening in the schools that might be churning out excellence in academia, but what's it doing to young people and how are young people allowed to engage in with so much social media that turns back on them as to how they see themselves, you know, and their worldview 
and how negative and overwhelming it is. I mean, there's some very interesting points in there. I mean, I remember doing what was called the Arab Spring, that social media was seen as the means by which uh, basically street demonstrations were being organised, demands for change in government, uh, which didn't necessarily work out very well because obviously that led to the Syrian civil war. But at the same time, it's interesting that you could have those street movements in Arab countries and elsewhere in Eastern Europe that came off the back of the use of social media. But uh, are, are there examples where social media has been used positively in terms of producing uh, a more effective voice for, for civil society, do you think? Well, I think there's always a balance to be struck. I mean, if you look at the social media around Me Too, uh, the amount of trolls and negativity and the backlash for many people who spoke out, you know, and that was devastating for a lot of people. And you get that constantly where social media will gather, you know, a whole range of diverse opinions, but some of them are so negative that no matter how good or how uh, well-intended messages are, you have the kickback. Uh, And now that's happening with regards to ISIS, and it's looking even at New Zealand, what's happening there. If you look at what Donald Trump is doing and the tweets that he's putting out, and then the response to that. So I think that the kickback can sometimes be far more damaging. I do believe that we should be aware of what's happening in the, the world. I mean, we are a global village, and I think that it's really important that we are connected because we can't be ourselves alone. We're part of a huge planet. The environment has to be looked after. We have to look after ourselves. And that the French philosopher says, when I look at you, I am responsible for you. So we all have that responsibility of how we see each other as neighbours, brothers, sisters. But I think that whenever it gets overwhelming, uh, people will switch off, but then that negativity, it's also easy to be exploiting people and manipulating people to think in a particular way. So you've ultimately, you know, you got the altruistic side, but then you've also got the rise of the very right-wing uh, fundamentalism that comes out directly as a result, I think, of uh, that negative type of social media that's, you know, social media that's put out there. And, and can you think of social platforms that have worked in various places that, that have helped strengthen civil society? I think that, uh, you know, I'd be interested in the, the, the Peter, I would support the Peter Thatchell Foundation, uh, despite the awful things that, is, that has happened to that man. He has been able to promote uh, you know, w- ways in which countries are doing good uh, good work with regards to the gay and lesbian community, but also raising, you know, d- desperate situations for people around the world. And we can see how, um, well, lucky we are in a way that we live in this society, but also the, the desperate needs that, that, that have to be addressed in other countries and support for that. So I think that there's that, um, the fight for the good, it can also trump the, the, the negativity. And it is important about raising awareness around it. Um, you know, I think that the up to a point the Me Too campaign encouraged women to come out and speak out, which was brilliant. But then for the for the woman that did speak out then there's a huge kickback uh, and a lot of negativity that came of that as too. So you have to draw you know, draw out the balance and what is you know, what's worth it. Um and what, how do you choose your battles, I suppose? Because it's, it's never straightforward. It's always very complex, very complicated. It's long drawn out uh, and you can suffer for a long, long time after it whenever you do put things on social media. And in terms of Northern Ireland, do you think there's things we can learn from the, the, the experience of the Civic Forum on the one hand and, and the Citizens' Assemblies in the South on the other? 
I think that in any society we need a top-down and a bottom-up approach. Uh, unfortunately, not having anything at the top at the moment, it relies very heavily on the bottom-up approach. I think that the citizens' assembly is a very good idea and it's very good to have people actually having a, a civil, uh, mature conversation that, that draws out you know, the common sense and the conclusions. And that, to me, when I talk about the common good or the greater good, you can actually reach a consensus. And then you realise everything is about compromise. But unfortunately, whenever we have, you know, politicians who have absolutely no interest in, in dealing in the common or greater good and everything is based on self-interest of the party, um, it, it becomes stymied and it becomes limited. And I worry all the time that we raise expectations in the community and then when nothing comes of it, people get very disillusioned, disheartened and they disengage. And part of that is that they go continually trying to make progress. Uh, they go to the workshops, they'll do what they can. But then ultimately uh, it's stymied or stopped or, you know, it comes to an abrupt end and progress can't be seen. The other difficulty is that progress, we have to be in it for the long term. And the short to medium term is no good. And sometimes people can't see that progress has been made uh, and the social media has worked very well. But it's a long term you know, and it's an outcome and a measure for down the road, which we don't often see. And in this world of short-term fixes, I'm sorry, that's influenced by the social media and the way that we view, view the world. You want everything now, consumerism, neoliberalism, whatever you want, you know, everything has to be like yesterday. Uh, and we don't have the patience to wait for the, the longer term. And that's where we have to start to rethink that, you know, every stone thrown into the pond does have a ripple effect, but it takes a long time. Do, do, do you actually maybe see that ripple effect? And this is long-term thinking. I mean, how do we move towards a, a shared and integrated society, do you think? Well, I, I have no doubt in my head that integrated education, absolutely fundamental to getting people to know each other, to engage with each other. Um, the difficulty there is that we don't have the the integrated society so you absolutely need to start the social housing that has to be across community um, and it has to be mixed uh, and the other thing that I think that we could highlight is the cost of segregation you know see when we're getting down to bread and butter issues you go out and you talk to the majority of people out there you know engage in civic society bread and butter issues they want the best for their children they want the best for their family they want to just keep surviving. You know, they want some sort of a quality of life. Uh, and it's this cost of segregation. If we can highlight that and people realise that, you know, if we can actually look at that and then redistribute the monies elsewhere where it's really, really needed, I think that people would be up for a more integrated society. The majority of people do want change. They do want a better future. Um, but it's taken that leap of faith, but also taken the steps towards that. And I think that one of the areas is actually exposing the segregation for what it is, the systems and structures that are created to keep people separated uh, and finding ways of bringing them together. Now, you've mentioned shared housing as part of that. Now, one of the problems is that a number of the shared housing schemes that have been put forward have been built on interface areas where it then becomes a, a, a focus of conflict as to whose territory it should be part of rather than being recognised as a, a genuine shared or integrated mm. uh, a community. I mean, do, w w how do you think we should improve our planning on that? It's community planning. 
if you look, I mean, there are architects who are actually exploring and researching how communities become uh, disengaged, uh, how community planning has created these ghettos uh, and how they've actually sectarianized neighborhoods because of simply where they're placed, uh, the lack of infrastructure, the lack of facilities. And usually when people become angry, disenfranchised is because they do not have the necessary facilities or infrastructures for their own survival, for their own quality of life. And that manifests itself in many different ways. So the community planning has a lot to answer for where they decide to put social housing and then they put people into those neighbourhoods and then the consequences for the long term are always negative on the people who end up in there. And it's usually people who are so desperate for a house or so desperate for shelter that they're going to take what's given to them. Uh, and unfortunately, without the proper planning, the proper infrastructure, um, you know, you can't uh, satisfy the needs of the, the people. And it's not... Not two weeks ago, I was talking to a group and they said, look, we don't even have a basic chemist here. You know, and they live in a big area. It's a social housing estate. Uh, no chemist. Uh, there's no facilities for shopping. Uh, they'd have to travel by bus to go anywhere. So they feel dislocated from the rest of the city, but also disconnected as well. Um, and the busing, there's, there's problems with busing and, you know, different ways that the infrastructure could be improved. They live in a very busy area, but it's outside a lot of the, the good amenities that would make their quality of life better. And I think that those things, you know, community planning uh, and how housing is organised, how the infrastructure's developed, um, there's different ways of doing that. And that's another very interesting point because we always talk about the, the retail crisis as if it's only affecting the high street, the city centres, town centres. But of course, for a lot of suburbs and other communities, there isn't a viable retail centre anymore there. So you haven't got a pharmacy, probably haven't yeah. got a GP practice in lots of places either. And uh, there is an interesting challenge there uh, mm. uh, to be dealt with. And it's huge. And it's the basic needs that have mm. to be met. And you look at the way the post offices have closed down mm. everywhere. You look at how the banks, uh, and if you don't do online banking, for a lot of elderly people and people who don't have transport, it's a huge problem for them. There's many, many people who are not computer literate. Uh, we talk about engaging civic society, but there's a huge amount of people out there that are at an age where they don't want to engage or people who are fearful simply because their information has been, you know, uh, taken or it has been abused or it has been sold on or there's scams going on and people for quite good reasons decide not to engage in it but if you don't have your internet if you don't have your email you know the chances are you're not going to be reached because within the community and voluntary sector for example or within the the pharmacies within the doctors within all of those there they depend now on emails I mean, whenever I have a dentist appointment, I get it on a, you know, my phone, you know, just to let me know to remind me about uh, an appointment. And every all that technology has reached the point where there's thousands of people that are so totally disconnected because they will not use the computer for good reason, or they're fearful of the computer, or they don't know how to use it. And I think that that's a really important area that we haven't explored. So you've got one side, social media uh, are overwhelmed, and then the other side where people are just feel lonely, disconnected. And I'm not saying that because I think that I know through going out and working at the grassroots, doing workshops, sessions, engaging with people at the community level, you know, you're desperate to find ways in which you can keep them engaged, but 
without funding and you know send letters now a snail mail you know by the time you get something to somebody the event's probably over it's you know there's all difficulties there of a whole uh, area of people that we can't reach but also i think your point is that the community structures are also under challenge uh, fractured because people don't bump into each other in the retail shops anymore because yeah. lots of them have closed in local areas You've hit the nail on the head. You know, the post offices were great ways of people communicating with each other. The local retail shops, you know, going down to your local shop, to, you know, every day and, you know, and even in the banks. But they aren't there now and there isn't that uh, way for people to engage anymore. So you're absolutely right. Yeah. Now, one of the big challenges we have is how we deal with the past. I mean, how do you think we should be dealing with that and to what extent we, can we use the past in, in, to achieve reconciliation? I think that um, that's core to the work that we do, ethical and shared remembering. And that's remembering a decade, 1912, 1922, because it's far enough in the distant past that people can explore it and unpack it safely. But it gives you a lot of lessons for today. And we don't seem to ever learn from history. But with big opportunities here now, the second half of the decade, 1918 to 1922, were huge um, our social, political, cultural, social landscape in Ireland changed forever. And I think that there are, way, there are ways in which we can complexify the narrative that we have now and also let people look at their past safely and draw uh, conclusions as to how they might want to go into a shared future and learn the lessons from the past. Brexit's the perfect opportunity. If you look at the 100 years gestation up to partition and then you look at what's happening with Brexit now, it's a whole constitutional question laid bare again. And I think that um, if we can learn from the lessons of the past, not shaming and blaming, but looking at the personalities of the time, looking at the decisions that were made, what were the implications of those, and what can we learn to take society forward. But it's getting enough people to engage uh, actively uh, and start to ask critical questions. And that's, that's asking critical questions of our politicians. I mean, our deeply, deeply segregated society, the way that our politicians behave to each other and with each other is hugely contentious. And it creates a lot of um, ill feeling. Uh, and it's done deliberately. And coming up to voting times, you know, that level of hostility goes up. And I just think, I just wish, and I have to accept that there isn't a level of maturity in the political world here the same as it takes, you know, many, many, how long, you know, a generation or two generations before you can develop a mature uh, political system. The other thing is what, you know, dealing with the past and looking to the future too, we absolutely have to change the way that our voting system works at the moment, you know, because it's not working. <laughs> we have to look at the ways in which, um, you know, from the top down, uh, the way that um, structures, again, systems that have to, have to be dismantled. Um, the other thing that we've been exploring is um, liberation from patriarchy for gender justice and the huge role that the, you know, that male domination system and the structures that have actually inhibited and stopped, uh, prevented peace and peace building, uh, exposing that and dismantling those structures and systems that have created a way of being that is about male domination, it's about violence uh, and it's about power over. And I think that um, unless we actually dismantle the patriarchal model, uh, we can't have peace. That's a huge um, challenge to all of us because it's too... 
whenever you put that out, you know, it's it's very threatening. Uh, you know, I'm often referred to as, are you going to have man-hating course? <laughs> and it's not about the liberation of women, but the liberation of men as well. You know, the gender, uh, you know, the whole gender issue, uh, the gender spectrum that we live here and the here and now, um, the ways of being the sectarianism, you know, how men have used and violated women, even through the recent troubles, and those stories have still to emerge. And all of that in dealing with the past and finding a better future that patriarchal model has to be dismantled uh, and and support a lot of women who work really hard, but they always come up against a brick wall or a glass ceiling and they can only go so far. And it's usually that male interference that stops them from going beyond that. I was at an event uh, recently at the Hollywood Trust uh, organised by WAVE where there were pupils from a number of different schools, from different backgrounds, and one of the pupils said that it was so useful to have heard the stories of the individuals who had lost loved ones, who had lost limbs in bombs and shootings. And what was important for them was that they had heard the human story, whereas in schools they had been taught the political story without the humanity attaching them. Do you think that is something that we should learn from? Well... I was the actual founder of Towards Understanding and Healing, and that's dealing with the past through storytelling and positive encounter dialogue. And I see that it's core to moving society forward, that rehumanising those that we have demonised, uh, and actually hearing the human cost, you know, that threading the human and emotional detail onto what has actually happened here. And I do think it's one of the most powerful ways in which young people and adults alike can start to think differently about the past. If you live in a ghetto, if you live in a segregated society, you have a perception in your head of who the enemy are. Uh, And if you don't get to move outside that, you don't hear the narratives outside of your own narrative of your own community, you build a picture. And then everybody else is perceived enemy and you're the victim. Uh, To expose yourself to the different narratives gives you the opportunity to change the story you tell yourself. Uh, and in that rehumanizing and then integrating that different story, you can start to change what you've heard from your peers, your family, your community, and it can help you to start to move on and, and think differently. And that is about creating that, you know, the critical thinking skills that we can sort of say, well, that can't all be true, or you start to investigate. And it's a complexifying the narrative. And, you know, it's almost about bringing confusion that you can't be certain. And it is all about creating, you know, conditions whereby we're more, we're as comfortable with the uncertainty as we are with the certainty. You know, and it's being uncertain uh, and then trying to find and explore the way we we hope to see the world differently uh, against that certainty of sin within our victimhood and within our story. And that's where it has to be challenged because that certainty becomes a fundamentalism. And you behave in a particular way when you've got a fundamentalist point of view. If you remain in that uncertain area, that that category, it means that you're open to change your story, you're open to challenge, and you're open to investigating the truth, whatever that truth might be. And I think that the, you know, creating really good dialogue, community education and training programs to get young people to think differently and adults as a way of trying to dispel the myths of the past and creating a different way of thinking in the future. And also creating empathy with people who are from very different backgrounds to your own. Empathy, I mean, that's crucial. A child has to learn empathy. 
And if a child isn't taught at a very young age how to develop empathy, it grows up without that knowing or that knowledge of how it has to develop empathy. And the empathy that'll extend to, you know, areas of racism, sectarianism, prejudice and discrimination. So it's one of the areas where parents have to take responsibility about what they pass on their children. So the intergenerational uh, passing on is very important to be challenged as well. And we're doing work in that whole area where we're trying to do education and training programs, raising awareness of what the parents pass on their children. Because if we're trying to create a new generation of young people coming up that don't hold on to prejudices, um, we're in trouble. We, we carry the, 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 the conflict on. And it's heartbreaking to me sometimes when I hear someone say, well, if I don't get justice, I have so many children, I have so many grandchildren, and they'll take up the challenge to find justice. And I'm thinking, like, what are we doing to our children? What are we doing to our grandchildren? You know, where are we going to break these cycles of violence, prejudice and discrimination? And we have to, I don't ever believe we have to draw a line in the sand, but we have to get people to think differently about how we start working towards the common good or the greater good and compromise ourselves and realise there's stuff, this is very difficult to say, there's stuff we have to let go of, you know, and we have to learn to let go of things that might be very, very painful. If we have any hope for the future for our children, if we care at all about our children and grandchildren, we have to change. And when we're talking about the future, the other big question is how we have the constitutional conversation about the future of this place. I mean, how do you think we do that in ways that aren't threatening? Wow. If I had a choice, I wouldn't have any of the politicians on air at all. Um, what, what happens and is played out in the airwaves is so damaging to the whole community. We work so hard in the sector to bring communities forward. Uh, and then you have these huge ideologies pushed down our throats. And we have things that are said that aren't, it isn't always the truth. Or we use history in a way that is damaging and it, it, you know, it feeds into a political agenda. And I think that it's a shame that this is continually put at us. Um, it's a, the constitutional question, to me, whenever we were within Europe, I mean, I always saw us as being part of a bigger picture, the European picture. And I didn't see, you know, there were no physical barriers, you know, people from North and South cooperated. Um, you know, the north, south, east, west. And we've got to get over this, you know, narrow notion of identity and nationalism and think of, you know, how are we uh, in the world today? You know, so even if Brexit, if we do and leave, you know, without a deal or without a deal, and I even hate talking about it, um, you know, we are a small island. We're on the periphery of the UK and even on the periphery of Europe and the world. You know, we're very, very, very small. But I think that we have to get over ourselves and think of the bigger question of how we want to be with each other. No matter, regardless of where we're governed from, you know, there should be um, federalism anyway. You know, you have opportunities for Scotland and Wales, you know, England. Why can't we just be federalised in that respect and look differently at how we govern ourselves? Um, and I do think that the constitutional question is brought out and it's always for political agendas and I do think that people want to get on with each other regardless the majority of people wouldn't be able to explain to you fully what the implications would be of going on to United Ireland but their hurts are so deep there that people have these notions of what they want uh, 
and I suppose they don't really know the implications, just like Brexit. We really don't know. It's like, you know, Tony Blair said this morning, you know, it's like moving into a new house, but you don't know what the new house looks like. <laughs> You're leaving one house and moving into a new house. And there's so much unknowing out there. And I think that um, we're never going to be told the truth. We're only told half the truth. And I think that if we create a civic society that is more attuned to what their needs are and what is needed, you know, environmentally, economically, you know, why why do we exist in a world? Why do we look always at uh, retail and trade and economics when, you know, there's so many other things out there that we have to look, and look to? You know, why was the European Union formed in the first place? Um, and the need to look to, you know, the bigger powers, um, you know, and look, how do we put an ethical lens on everything rather than being always based in these small, narrow uh, self-interests of us ourselves alone? And we, we, you know, we kick way above our weight or we punch way above our weight. Um, we get so much air space and air time and yet we're this wee tiny, tiny part of a country. Um, but we're white, mainly Christian. So we, you know, we do punch away above our weight. And I, I find that difficult myself whenever across the world there are huge, big issues that need to be addressed. So get over ourselves. Maureen Harry, thanks very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, thanks to Maureen there. Um, Paul, anything else that we're taking away from the conversation with Maureen? I think that one of the things that came through was about political leadership and the fact that we need politicians, particularly in segregated societies, that are demonstrating real leadership. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we hear this so often, don't we? This mm. absence of leadership, we need it. And, and Maureen's very clear that the type of leadership we need, need, it has to be different from the type of leadership that it has been in the past. And she's very clear that uh, patriarchy has to be challenged and um, that we do need to have a, a different type of society. And one of the points that she says is that if it's a, a, a patriarchy society, you're not going to have uh, permanent peace. Yeah. Um, so yeah, she's, she's very clear about that. But she also she's got other ideas in terms of how we make progress and and, uh, as we previously heard with um, uh, Linda uh, in the past, uh, you know that uh, the idea of federalism uh, mm. as a solution to the constitutional problem. Uh, so you know that's uh, an interesting idea. And one of the other points that she she made, I mean, although I know from what she's saying that she's not a fan of Tony Blair, she did quote him as saying that Brexit's a bit like buying a house without knowing which your new house is going to be, where it is and what it looks like. Yeah. Uh, and I, th I think she was talking about United Ireland there as well, but we need to be really sure of what we're moving on to, if we're going to yes. move on to it at all. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's that for this episode of the Forward Together podcast. Thanks to everyone involved. Thanks to Maureen for taking the time to meet with us, to Paul for doing the interview, and to Emer Doherty for production support. And we'll be in touch again soon. Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland supports this podcast through its media grant scheme and core funding programme.